Hey guys, just a quick announcement before we start this week's show, which is that we have a special bit of news. We have released an audio cassette. Yes, that's right. But it's not your normal audio cassette. This is like a futuristic uh, year 3000 cassette because (laughs) in it... It contains not just your average 50 minutes that an audio cassette would. We have over 1,900 minutes on this. It's true. It's a USB audio cassette. It's amazing. It looks like an audio cassette, and this USB pops out, and on it, it's got the complete second year of Fish, which you've, you may have noticed we've taken down from the website, and we've put it onto this cassette. Yeah. And it's also got a special filmed episode we never before seen never again seen but it's filmed yeah that's right we filmed it in our natural habitat at the qi office in covent garden <laughs> around the table that we started the whole podcast on and i have to say it's got for me personally my favorite fact that i found in all four years of doing oh, the yeah, podcast okay. it's it's very exciting it's a very good fact when you hear it yeah you won't believe fact number three <laughs> it's fact number four um but yeah uh do get it you can get it by going to qi.com slash cassette and i do encourage you just to go there just to look at it it's a thing of beauty it's absolutely stunning it's this retro item you know it's a it's a proper cassette the casing the booklet everything is there and it's yellow it's, it is yellow the actual cassette is yellow <laughs> so qi.com slash cassette all right on with the show on with the show live from melbourne australia Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast this week coming to you from Melbourne! Dan Schreiber, and I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is that there was a showman in the 1930s whose act consisted of repeatedly crashing his plane into the ground. (laughs) This is such an amazing guy. Well, so this fact. Well, sorry, Andy. How do you repeatedly? Cra- Surely you can well, only crash a plane once into the ground. That's a very good point. He he re- sequentially crashed separate planes <laughs> into the ground. Let the record show. Um, so this fact was actually sent in to to us to me by a guy called Cameron Dawkins. So Cameron, thank you very much for this. And I I, I looked into him a bit more. Uh, the the showman, not Cameron Dawkins. <laughs> and, <laughs> Do you not care about Cameron at all? I do. He sent you a fact. It's yeah. true. All right, I've researched Cameron Dawkins' life, and we're here to tell you some home truths. Andy, all the research we've done is on Cameron oh, for this no. show. <laughs> Cameron was born in 1982. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, the, the guy's name, the showman's name, he was called Frank Frakes. What a cool name. He was from Tennessee. And his speciality, he was an aerial showman, so he did lots of stuff. So he did loop-the-loops, and he did all sorts of acrobatics with his plane. But his special trick was uh, crashing planes into trees, lakes, pre-built houses, and sometimes just smashing them right into the ground. Uh, he would buy a very old, clunky plane. So obviously planes were very, very basic in these days. He'd buy a really old, clunky plane. He would get it just airworthy, 
and then he would crash it. Yeah. And he was very honest about his career. He said, I admit, I fool the public. Everyone who goes out there will expect to see me get killed, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and he, um, it's amazing. You can see footage of this online. There's all these old newsreels where they see Frank as he, that kind of voice. And you see him go through houses, and there's one, um, there's one great clip where he misses the house because the, the, the plane actually goes out of control. He loses genuine uh, control of it. And he plummets, and you see him plummet in the distance. And by pure coincidence, he plummeted onto a car. So everyone was just as happy because he still hit a thing. <laughs> Apart from the guy driving the car, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and he was, yeah, he was badly hurt. But he... Um... <laughs> and we're definitely sure he wasn't just a very bad pilot. <laughs> oh, well, all the time. The whole time. His he actors just... actually, watch me stay flying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was sponsored by Camel Cigarettes. As were everyone in those days. So actually, if you Google him and if you look at sort of old sources from the time, the only thing that mentions him are cigarette adverts, yeah. where he just... Uh, there are lo- it's so weird, adverts in those days, in the 30s, because you'll get a, like a really long-form piece, paragraph after paragraph, about his career. And then the closing line will be something like, and below you see him having performed this stunt and ready to enjoy his favourite smoke, camels. And yeah, <laughs> and he'd have, there'll be little cartoons of him where he'd say, I always smoke camels, I can smoke as many as I want, and I feel fresh never jittery and never upset yes yes my job is dangerous but I'll tell you what's even more dangerous a lifetime of smoking camel cigarettes <laughs> so um, the civil aviation authority didn't like this guy did they right um, they kept trying to shut him down and all he'd do was just move to a different state where they couldn't get hold of him and so one time he was flying in Florida and he crashed his plane and everyone thought he was really injured. So um, an ambulance came and put him in the ambulance and then they drove off and then they got to state lines. He jumped out and then ran off and then did a show in the next state the next day. <laughs> That's, That's so amazing. Cool. It was very popular back then, wasn't it? What, yeah. doing these, like, tricks and stuff? Doing, yeah, particularly air, air flights and air stunts. It was basically, after the First World War, there was this massive surplus of aeroplanes, and the government didn't know what to do with them. And so they sold them for nothing. I think, actually, they would sell the petrol in the tank, and it came with a free plane wow. sometimes. <laughs> and so all these amateurs just bought up all these planes and became stuntmen. And, it, yeah, it was a huge deal. And we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but what they used to do was a thing called barnstorming, where a group of them would go and fly over a town and they would land in a field they would ask for permission to put on a massive show and if they got the permission they would drop leaflets out of the plane saying come and watch our show so they traveled in a pack they were a tour like a flying a literal flying circus that would come in and do their show and then some people think that the barnstorming word comes from crashing into these barns like this guy Mm -hmm. did he crashed into prefab buildings didn't he yeah Yeah. do you know his other act was called the casket of death (laughs) <laughs> and he would climb into a barrel, which would be reinforced, blow it up with dynamite in, from inside, and then jump out. What? Wow. How would that work? I don't know. He just if, put... But what you're saying is that he's in the same place as the dynamite. They're both inside the barrel. Yes. I would have had at least the barrel in between me and the dynamite. Well, that's why, that's why your circus act failed. <laughs> James safely blows up a barrel at a distance. There's <laughs> no peril. Um, there was another guy called the Salamander, and he he would uh, he had a death slide, which he, it was like a bobsleigh with a cradle of lit fireworks underneath him. But he also did a trick where he poured a pile of gunpowder along his neck and arm to a pile in his hand, and his assistant would set fire to the gunpowder in his collarbone, and when it got to his hands, it would blow up. But he only did it apparently on special occasions. <laughs> he only ever did it twice, didn't he? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> but gunpowder base stunts, I think, were quite a thing. Again, because people, the war just happened, people were quite into blowing things up. And in the 30s, in Germany, rocket cycling was quite a big deal. And so this was tying big sticks of dynamite to a bike and then lighting it. And then it propels you in your rocket. There was a guy called Herr Richter who was good at this. He, there was another he, guy called Wiley Coyote who was good at it. <laughs> Yeah, he, so this guy, he, he tied 12 rockets to his bike and then he called it Rackenton Rudd. And when he hit 55 miles an hour the first time he did it, all, they all exploded and he flew off and travelled about 50 yards into a hedge, I think. But he kept uh, it up. It is weird. They used to, um, the Daredevil, it was a job that suddenly boomed where people were answering adverts in the newspaper. This is a genuine one from 1931. Wanted single man, not over 25, to drive automobile in head-on collision with another car. (laughs) Must crash with another car at 40 miles an hour and give unconditional release in case of injury or death. (laughs) Name your lowest price. And these are like, if you picture the cars as well, if you picture in your head just old cars of the olden days, they were, those are the ones that were flying over buses and they couldn't get much speed and it's pretty extraordinary to look at all the photos at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were kind of flimsy, weren't they? Because yeah. another thing they used to do was travel in a car, well, a little bike with a sidecar with a lion in it. Um, and that was, this was another popular thing and they, they actually had a name. I think they were called Lion Dromes. So they'd go round a velodrome but on a motorbike and there'd be, sometimes there'd be a lion in your sidecar and then there was another one where you were riding around a velodrome on your motorbike and a bunch of lions got released and chased you what wow come on it and just charged after you this is entertainment sounds great yeah that's cool <laughs> the um, first person to do a loop the loop in an aeroplane uh, was a Russian uh, Soviet guy called Pyotr Nyesterov uh, and he was immediately arrested for risking government property uh, and then a few months later, there was a French guy who did it um, called Adolphe Pegu, and he became world famous. And then the Soviets went, oh, maybe we shouldn't have arrested that guy after all. <laughs> and they took him out of prison, and he was promoted to staff captain and awarded a medal. Really? <laughs> wow. Wow. That is so funny. Have you ever heard, obviously, jumping out of a moving plane is very dangerous. Yeah. Have you ever heard of jumping into a moving plane? No. This is a thing that some people do. Well, wow. if you're really late for your flight. And it's just... <laughs> I'm serious. This has been done. It was first done in 1997, and then last year, 2017, two guys recreated it, uh, two French daredevils. So what happens is you jump out of the aircraft, you're wearing a wingsuit, you then... Fly until you've caught up with the aircraft, which is flying downwards, and then you jump back into it. Wow. It's not as rare. It is also one for special occasions only, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, check this story out. I was reading about a guy called Graham Donald. He was a pilot in 1917, and he was attempting for the first time in a plane that's called a Sopwith Camel. Yeah, so he was attempting his first loop the loop. So he went up 6,000 feet, and he got to the peak of his loop the loop. He was upside down, and his belt snapped and he fell out he disappeared out of the plane yeah wow. now 55 years later he tells this story oh it was <laughs> you're gonna say 55 years later he landed <laughs> <laughs> so check this out he's upside down the belt snaps and he falls out he plummets 5,000 feet but because he was in the middle of a loop-the-loop maneuver his plane came back down no. and around. yeah no yeah this is his story. It he is. landed on the wing of the plane with 2,000 feet to go. Flying back in. Yes, I've got okay. it. It's here. Have, there are 1,000 no. people here. Does anyone believe that story? Give us a cheer. 
Graham Donald. Check him out, 1917. A thousand, but it doesn't matter if he said it, he's obviously delusional. A thousand percent not true. No, isn't that incredible? He met it on the bottom of the loop, the loop. On the wing. It is literally incredible. Yeah. It is Listen, not credible. How did, play, how did the plane know where to go? Because he, he had it in a loop-the-loop manoeuvre. It was just following its path. It was a natural path. That's not He's, how physics works. <laughs> it would just go to straight... It would go at a tangent. He said the first 2,000 feet passed very quickly and terra firma looked damn firma. As I fell, I began to hear my faithful little camel somewhere nearby. Suddenly, I fell back onto her. <laughs> Maybe he was talking about the cigarettes, come on. <laughs> and he made a good landing. He's, okay. he's a hero. Yeah, fine. Wow. Hey, we're going to have to move on to our next fact. Uh, all right. Do you guys know... <laughs> One more, okay. Do you guys know Tommy Fitzpatrick? No. no my favourite uh, stunt man. In 1956, he was really drunk in a pub in New York. He made a bet with his friend there that in 15 minutes, he would be back at that pub in an aeroplane. And then he went to an airport in New Jersey. Uh, he stole a plane. He landed it on St. Nicholas Avenue in Manhattan between a whole bunch of cars and in complete darkness, no lights on the plane, nothing. Um, and he rocked up back in the bar and he said, hey guys, I did it. I suspect it took him longer than 15 minutes. He was charged with grand larceny, but the owner of the plane didn't press charges, so he got away with it. And two years later, he was in the same bar telling the story and the person he was telling didn't believe him, so he did the exact same thing again. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that a new scientific study has shown that people who claim to know a lot of facts don't actually know as many facts as they think they do. <laughs> whoa, 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 Dan. What does it say about people who don't know that many facts and that the few facts that they do say are often described as dubious? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this is, um, this is a study that was written by a man called Graham Donald who previously survived a loop-the-loop in a plane. Um, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. This is real. This is real. The other thing was real. I don't know why I'm... <laughs> other thing was real. Um, so this is a new study. This is that people who uh, think that they have superior knowledge, both knowledge, belief, facts, um, they tend to overestimate how much they actually know. And then, so they did this as a study. It's in a paper that's called Is Belief Superiority Justified by Superior Knowledge? They sat people down and they asked them what they knew and then they did a test to actually test if they knew what they thought they knew. And it turns out they don't. <laughs> yep. But even when they were told that they were wrong, they still believed that they knew more than most yeah. people, didn't they? Yeah. And this was, a, it was all about political political um, facts. Yes, exactly, yeah. Oh, so as if they have political biases, then they won't, they'll just assume they know facts. They were like, objectively, I'm right. Yeah. 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 Okay. And they, these people were also found to, um, whenever they want to read about a subject, they always read papers that agreed with whatever their viewpoint was. Uh, and they also did it knowing that they were doing that. And said, no, this is fine. This is yeah. what I'm meant to do. So that's They're... what the study was about. I know, I'm relating to so much of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> But there, there, I think there have even been studies done before that show that the more expert you are in something, the more you'll 
uh, you, the more you'll lie about how much you know about it. So basically, there was a study in 2015 that found that um, you're likely to overclaim if you're good at something. So, for instance, if you're a geographer, then you'll claim you know of a place that actually doesn't exist. And that literally happened. So a bunch of geographers, by profession, were given a list of geographic locations and told, you know, tell us if you're familiar with these places. And they said, yeah, Lake Othello, sure. Yeah, Kashmir in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, I know that place. It's uh, my aunt lives there. And none of those places existed. <laughs> 92% said, same with bio- biologists, so biology experts we were said, uh, are you familiar with these toxins and chemicals? And so they were asked, do you know about metatoxins? Do you know about retroplex? And they just ticked all those boxes. They said, yeah, of course I do. I'm a biologist. All made up. That doesn't just happen with people who are experts in the field. So, for example, in 2013, uh, the TV host Jimmy Kimmel, who's a very famous guy, he carried out an experiment on this. And when I say he, I mean someone in his production team. <laughs> but he, he, they went to Coachella, the American music festival, <laughs> Your Honour, and um, they, they filmed themselves asking people, have you heard of these bands and are you looking forward to seeing them at Coachella? But there were a lot of made-up bands. And it's amazing seeing people saying, oh, yeah, I've heard, I haven't heard their new stuff, but I, my friends have told me I have to see them. When the bands were called things like Dr. Shlomo and the GI Clinic, <laughs> the Obesity Epidemic, I love their stuff, and my favourite, Shorty Jizzle and the Plumber Cracks. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the idea that Jimmy Kimmel actually, instead of working on his show and doing jokes, is like, can we get more scientific surveys going on? And I'll focus on them. You guys do the rest. Uh, another psychological study. Oh, yeah. um, Anna, you're quite good at uh, crosswords. Aren't you? Uh, I'm better than Dan, sure. Uh, <laughs> James could have asked you anything that you were good at, and that's still the answer. <laughs> So um, I'll give you some words and so see if you can guess what they are. This or just is give a us your best guess. Horrible thing to do. So um, <laughs> it's four letters: W blank blank H. W blank with. Blank. Whoa. With. Okay. Um, Andy. What? I'll say wash. Okay. S blank blank P. Soap. Stop. Shape. Okay. Well, this has worked quite well because you know this isn't how crosswords work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? <laughs> Apparently, anyone who says cleansing-related words like wash or soap uh, has, yeah. has, has done some extremely bad deeds in the most recent past. Wow. <laughs> and it literally says, instead of alternatives such as with and stop. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I thought with, I just took wash because she'd said with already. <laughs> I did say soap first, I grant you that. <laughs> this is great. So I'm the normal against which no, the You're the angelic mentioned. one, and this is the evil bastard. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is, there's a thing about um, when you're tricked by a fraudster, it turns out it's not the fraudster who's tricking you, it's you who's tricking you. Okay. You trick yourself into thinking this fraudster is... This fraudster is plausible. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in 2008, Stephen Greenspan, he's an author, he published a book called The Annals of Gullibility, which was the summary of decades of work of his about how not to be gullible, how not to be fooled. Two days after publication, he discovered that his financial advisor, one Mr. Bernie Madoff, <laughs> <laughs> had defrauded him out of a third of his retirement savings. Whoa! I know. Yeah. But he. <laughs> I, I mean, bet he's glad that we're having a massive laugh about that in Melbourne. 
<laughs> that is pretty funny. That was bad. <laughs> but what he said is that, well, he didn't say this, but the theory goes that Greenspan trusted Madoff. He made himself believe, no, this guy seems plausible. If I give him a bit of money, I'll get loads back. Okay. Wow. Um, so this, this fact is about basically the Dunning-Kruger effect, which yeah. I'm sure we've mentioned before. Semi-well-known people of low ability who are just crap at things, thinking they're really good at things. And the idea is that if you literally know almost nothing about something, you don't know the stuff that reveals to you how little you know. Um, so, so like a, a good an example that really spoke to me was that um, if, <laughs> if you don't know the... I bet they all speak to you, Dan. <laughs> So if you're bad at, if you're bad at writing, um, and let's say you don't have a good grasp of grammar um, and uh, spelling, you won't know that you're a bad writer because you don't know the rules in order to know that you're bad at those rules. Therefore, you yeah. think you're good without knowing. Yeah, yeah, that is a good example. The example it was based on, though. <laughs> I'm actually going to edit that out because it doesn't help us if you say smart things on this podcast. <laughs> You've got a personality to keep up here, Dan. Um, so the example, I didn't know the example on which Dunning-Kruger effect was based. So it was Dr. Dunning uh, who came across this incident. David Dunning came across this incident in 1995, I think. It was a man who robbed ban- banks in Pittsburgh and he was caught on security cameras. So he went in broad daylight. He didn't have a mask on or anything. Uh, caught on security cameras, arrested. And when he was interviewed, he said, but I wore the juice. And it turned out he'd rubbed lemon juice on his face. And he thought, because that works as invisible ink that that would render his face invisible to security cameras. That is a brilliant trick to play on someone, isn't it? To tell them that. Even better if you tell them that human semen was used as invisible ink in the wall. Right. Which it it was. Which it was, was. yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, that would have been an extremely weird thing for me to say. (laughs) But again, human semen on your face does not render it invisible to security cameras. (laughs) Just to be clear. How did we get here? So it makes here? you quite conspicuous, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be so weird at a lot of the end of ports. Where's she gone? Like, it would be... <laughs> we need to move on in a second, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, we need to move on five minutes ago, Dan. <laughs> Anything before we do? <laughs> Um, just one, one little thing. British, uh, there's a thing called the better than average effect where you'll, you'll have heard that lots of people, m- most people consider themselves better than average drivers. There was a study on uh, British prisoners which found that they rate themselves as more ethical and more moral than British people who are not in prison. <laughs> they also think, they are more, they think they're more kind, moral, trustworthy, honest, dependable, generous, law-abiding, self-controlled and generous. The only category they didn't think they were better than average on was law-abidingness. <laughs> and even then, they considered themselves average with everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. Yep, my fact is that in the first major battle of World War I, the soldiers arrived by taxi. <laughs> and... The taxi drivers duly charged the government 70,012 francs for the journey. (laughs) Was the incentive to get soldiers to jump out of the taxis very quickly because the last guy would have to pay? (laughs) Is that what you do? I never noticed it, but come to me. Well, I think we're learning where these words wash and soap come from, Andy. (laughs) 
This is, this is the amazing story of the Battle of the Marne, which was a massive turning point in the First World War. It was September 1914, first major battle on the Western Front, and the Germans were getting dangerously close to Paris, but that did mean that they could deploy all the Paris taxi drivers. And so the Brazilian government sent 3,000 soldiers by taxi from Paris to the front, the war front, in 600 cabs, and everyone carried five soldiers... So a bit of a squash, because that's, you know, that's four squashed up in the back and then one in the front who has to make awkward conversation with the driver <laughs> all the way there. <laughs> so what, are you saying that later on they're in the trenches going, well, it's bad here, but it's not as bad as the squashed taxi that we had to get here in? It, it must have looked quite bizarre because they weren't allowed to have their lights on except the taxi at the very front and everyone else just had to follow the back lights, the back red lights so they couldn't be spotted. But yeah, this is how they got to the front and then it was a turning point and the Allies won it and happy news, the war then went on for another four years. So. <laughs> the account of it uh, on Wikipedia just reports that the Germans were surprised. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very important element of war. <laughs> they did. I do love that they got charged for it. Taxi drivers, you know, however much yeah. they want to do their duty for their country. In the end, you have deprived them of a couple of fares. So, yeah, 70,000 francs. Well, it's London, actually a big, um, big, steep journey. Yeah, it is. London used to send in double-decker buses uh, during the war effort yeah. as well. Um, and that was amazing because they were, those are big buses, not the modern ones, obviously, the sort of the old classics. And uh, they were going down these country roads, which obviously weren't built to take these double-decker buses. So what would often happen is they would come across another double-decker bus from another ally coming the other way, try and get past each other, but tip over. And so the roads were littered with tipped-over buses that they couldn't get back up to function. Were they littered? <laughs> yeah. Was it like... You know, you can't stretch your arms out on this row without bumping into a double-decker bus. It just... Some of those ones, actually, because they were used for lots of different things. They were used as ambulances and for transport, the London buses. And some of them were used to carry pigeons, to carry carrier pigeons, to carry carrier pigeons. And um, they had special pigeon lofts built on the top of them. So they're really cool pictures of these double-decker buses with a pigeon loft kind of house built on top of it. Yeah. Brought them over. That's amazing. You'd think the pigeons could just fly over. You would have thought... But they, they were actually all conscientious objectors, so they really had to be forced. <laughs> <laughs> Very. Uh, some stuff on taxis. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in the UK, um, it's illegal to get into a taxi if you have plague, <laughs> unless you tell the taxi driver. <laughs> so you're not allowed to withhold it from him. Um, and this is actually, there's all sorts of different diseases. Um, this is according to the Public Health Control of Diseases Act of 1985. Um, so if you have the plague, cholera, le relapsing fever, smallpox, or typhus, then you have to tell the taxi driver. But also, weirdly, food poisoning, you need to. And these are all, if you also, if you want to go to a library and get a book out, and you have plague. You have oh, to... <laughs> I thought you meant you have to tell the driver that you're going to the library. <laughs> it's none of his fucking business. <laughs> it, is, it is kind of his business where you're going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very I've got a taxi story. This is from 2015, and it's a story about a taxi in Britain. It was that in 2015, a group of friends tricked a taxi driver out of a £140 fare by leaving a mannequin in a hat in the back seat. 
and pretending it was their sleeping friend. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, they went from Brighton to London, which is about 50 miles. It's a very long journey. Lucky cabbie. And they were like, oh, no, you need to take Derek here up to Manchester. <laughs> oh, no. And they just, they got the two of them, they got out and they left the guy, the mannequin in the hat and they said, our friend's asleep, but will you wake him up? Here's the address. But- and where did they send him to? That's what I want to know. It, was, it wasn't too far off. Yeah, because he, he might have worked it out, right? He might have worked yeah. it out, yeah. Do you know some other cars that drove from Brighton to London <laughs> were... The, <laughs> <laughs> it was such a pointless link. It's about taxis. I mean... <laughs> Um, were the world's first fleet of electric taxis. And these were in 1897. So electric cars came along, and most cars were taxis then. And so in 1897, they wanted to show off. They were called hummingbirds because they made the sound of a hummingbird whenever they drove along. And they travelled at maximum 12 miles an hour, usually more like nine. And as part of the unveiling, they did the London to Brighton journey, which, as you say, is about 50 miles. Although they weren't actually able to complete the journey, and they had to do part of the race by train. So <laughs> the, other, the other reason they were unpopular, the electric cars, was because they had electric lighting inside and people didn't really like that because people with a bashful disposition felt as conspicuous as if they were on the stage with the limelight on them. And so people didn't like having lights so on. So was the light on while they were driving? Uh, so it was, it it was, was shining taxis, on you. So the passengers. Oh, was the ta- oh, that's cool. so weird. Okay, so the first taxis were sedan chairs, right, in oh. London. And they were, well, all over, um, but they, they were very good precisely for the opposite reason, which is that there was no light on you at all and you were surrounded by fabric. So it was extremely discreet. Um, and the best thing was they could go into your house and up the stairs. So if it, That's really awesome. They were really good. That's uh, like getting an Uber and the guy carries you up to yeah. bed, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, they were faster than carriages, lots of narrow stairways, two guys carrying you up there. And basically, if you were having an affair or you're trying to avoid arrest, you just get into a sedan chair in your house and say, take me up to that house, <laughs> second floor, please. Oh, wow. And they'll do it. What? Very yeah. Cool. As a connection, our, uh, our mother show, QI, um, Stephen Fry, his car is a London black cab. Yeah. And oh, yeah. he's, it's fine now because he lives in the countryside in Norfolk, but he used to live in London, and most of his days were people just hopping into the back <laughs> and seeing Stephen Fry up oh, I had that Stephen Fry in the front of my cab. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Philip. Our Prince Philip. And yours. <laughs> <laughs> that was a risky one, man. <laughs> yeah, he had, a, he had a private cab, but he only gave it up last year. Did he? Okay. Yeah. Good, so... (laughs) Um, You know, the first drunk driving incident was a taxi driver. And this was also in 1897, actually. This was a cab driver called George Smith who drove his taxi straight into the side of a building and wrote it off. He was arrested for drunk driving. First person ever. And the police officers couldn't prove it, but they knew he was drunk because apparently he was acting drunk and he said he was drunk. But that... (laughs) After that, they realised that they'd need a test for it and that's where the breathalyser came from. So they based the breathalyser on that. And initially it was a balloon and you blew into a balloon and then you put the end of the balloon over a sort of bottle of chemicals which changed from purple to yellow and it didn't work very well because there was no measure of how drunk you were it just changed from purple to yellow and you went I don't know how yellow is that is that like yellow and is that bright enough yellow yeah let's arrest him Uh, we need to move on very soon Um, uh, I read that the word do you know where the word taxi comes from Um, Uh, no taxis uh, like tax arrangement means movement in Latin yeah it comes from the word taxi meter 
Oh, okay. Isn't that weird? Um, what was ta- what was a taxi meter before a taxi then? I, it had it had a different name, but then someone invented the taxi meter, and they were like, "Oh, that's a fantastic. <laughs> what, name. what are we going to put this in?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they built a car around it. Um, okay, we need to move on to our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the Gulf Corvina fish has such loud sex that it can deafen dolphins. <laughs> that is. Loud. They shouldn't be listening, the perverts. <laughs> <laughs> So, the gold carvina is a Mexican fish. Um, they have sex in huge orgies with lots of these fish. And they have mating calls that sound like rapid-sounding pulses, like a machine gun. Uh, and you get a whole load of them together because it's an orgy, and that's what happens, I believe, in orgies. <laughs> and apparently it sounds like a crowd cheering at a football stadium <laughs> or a really, really loud beehive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there was a guy who studies them called Timothy Rothwell and he said that the sound was literally so loud that he had to shout to talk to the rest of the team when he was studying them and he's above water so wow. you can still hear it there yeah wow. it's incredible I listened to a sound file of it today and Jeez. yeah you could oh, sound only I know right oh. <laughs> <laughs> missing out on the good stuff um <laughs> It, uh, it does sound like a sort of kind of like a, like a machine gun sound that you were talking about. I imagine, you know when in Australia when you press those buttons to cross the street and it just goes... Yeah, yeah. Like that? Yeah. That's, that's actually... Not Is many that... people know that that's the sound of a fish. <laughs> yeah. Little known fact. And this um, kind of uh, orgy thing, frenzy thing that they do basically sees all of the world's adult Corvinas gathered in less than 1% of their usual home. So they all come from all different places. They all come to this one place. So it's like everyone getting into one cupboard for the orgy. (laughs) (laughs) Not not really. It's less than 1% of their usual home. Yeah, but that... (laughs) It's like that. (laughs) But everyone in your home... So, which will just be you and your girlfriend, I guess. Well, it's just like you and your girlfriend getting in a cupboard. <laughs> I worked out the numbers, and it was a bit like... It's a bit like everyone in London going to Disneyland once a year to have sex. Ah. About that size. And that, I know, is a contravention of park rules. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. And, and how do you know that? <laughs> That's why you guys have to do it in the cupboard now, right? <laughs> Everyone knows it's Disneyland or a cupboard. <laughs> um, it's actually really inconvenient for these fish that they do this, right? Because, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as you say, they all gather together um, to have sex. And they're really tasty. They're a delicacy. And fishermen go to where they gather to have sex. And then they make this huge noise to really advertise exactly where they are. Yeah. And so fishermen know exactly where to go to fish for them. It's, yeah. not, the, it's not the worst um, fish sex tactic. So there is a fantastic book uh, by Mara J. Hart. It's called Sex in the Sea. I highly recommend it. It's all about this sort of thing. I don't recommend Never you mind why I recommend it. Or for that matter why I bought it. But it has information about fish. You were very disappointed it was a non-fiction book, weren't you? Anyway, no, there are fish called Grunion. And they, to have sex, throw themselves onto land 
which is very inconvenient because they are fish. And <laughs> the female has to dig a hole in the sand and then bury herself in the sand until there's only her head sticking out. She starts laying eggs and then the male jumps on her and spoons her and, and has sex with her. And he uses her as a slide for his sperm, which lands on the eggs, and then they have to cu- try and catch a wave back. It sounds like the most inconvenient <laughs> mating ritual you could imagine. And yeah, she, ha- she can't breathe through any of it. Right. Um, so it's so unpleasant. And it, they're orgies as well, aren't they? So often she's yeah. got a few males curved around her while suffocating to death, whilst attempting to procreate. It's a very bad, it's bad deal. We actually have it quite good, guys, by comparison. <laughs> I started reading about, so it, dolphins are going deaf off the back of these fish having sex, and um, I was looking into dolphin sex to see what they... And there's, this is really cool. This is a... a um, Did you watch Flipper 3 in the course of your research? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do, this is Australian scientists have found that um, dolphins, they've observed them doing this new thing where they come to surface and they pull like a banana shape, so their head goes up, and their back goes up, and they sit there like a big banana. And that's apparently really attractive. And they go, well, look at the banana. And, they, and, and that's like a new mating thing that we've not noticed before. This was last year that we discovered wow. this. And also what they do is, um, these are humpback dolphins. They dig down, and they break off coral, and they wear them on their nose as a little hat. So they have nice. a hat, yeah. And again, so they're, they're mid-banana move with coral on their nose. And people, or other dolphins, are looking at them, going... I'm sexy. Yeah, that's sex, yeah. Although they like to avoid males sometimes, so dolphin females are often really hassled by the males and kind of gang-banged. And so they really will have lots of males chase them at the same time, try to have sex with them, and they flip over in the water and they stick their reproductive parts out of the water and the males can't get to them at all. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They also slap them in the face with their tails quite a lot when they're being chased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, I said coral. Sponges. They put sponges oh, on their okay. nose. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I was looking at some fish sounds. Oh, yeah. Because underwater creatures have the most amazing ways of making noise, and it works completely differently underwater. So clownfish make a chirping noise by gnashing their teeth. They literally, the only way they can communicate is by snapping their teeth together. Um, they're oyster toadfish. They make a blare like a foghorn noise by contracting their swimming bladders. And there's gourami, which snap the tendons of their pectoral fins. So they basically clap their fins together, I suppose, in order to communicate with each other. That's but cool. they can be super loud fish. They've, they um, have been known to keep people awake at night, haven't they? I think we've covered various things in I the think past. a lot of the facts here are going to keep me awake at night. <laughs> But I think the problem was is that um, Jacques Cousteau did a documentary, didn't he, in um, 1956 called The Silent World. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was all about the underwater. Um, But basically, his diving tanks masked all the sounds of the water. So he was like, oh, it's so quiet in here. But actually, that's just where his microphones were. And so lots of people thought it was really quiet. But like like you say, Anna, it is loud as hell, isn't it? It's noisy, even though it doesn't really work very well with our ears. Because I thought this was really interesting. So sound waves, uh, because they travel a different way in water to how they do in air. And we've got air 
in our ear. That's why sound is messed up for us underwater. But that's also why whales, you know, they have huge amounts of wax in their ears. So you see um, whales' ear wax. It mm. comes, you know, many, many inches long ear wax. And that's kind of the same density as water. So that means that the sound waves can travel into their ears mm. and they'd be fine. But it's assumed that if they came up onto the surface, they would be deaf in air. Really? So, wow. Yeah. That's how you make a fish death. Just on sex sounds, peacocks have been observed um, on land um, as opposed... Yeah. Um, Yeah. Peacocks... They do do not thrive underwater. (laughs) (laughs) So peacocks um, have been found to be doing a false sex sound in order to attract mates. So what will happen is while they're mating, they have the sound that they do, which is um, which they'll just go the whole way through. The... Do it now. Come on. I haven't... <laughs> annoyingly could not find that audio file. Um, <laughs> but they... Uh, so they make this sound, and then the thing is it's a very loud sound that the male makes. So while it's happening, other females in the area will hear it at a distance and go... Ooh, that sounds like a good guy to reproduce with, which is what they're trying to do. So that's what they listen out for. And if they, the reason that that's good, that sound, is it means that someone has picked them as genetically uh, good to reproduce, and so that's very important. So peacocks that are not good at reproducing genetically have worked out this trick where if they just make the sound even though they're not having sex, female peacocks will hear them in the distance going, whoa, that guy must be awesome. And... (laughs) And head over to do it. Um, <laughs> Andy, we've, di- we've discussed this before, I think. Yeah. It's so a lot of animals do these fake calls, yeah. but there are some where they can't do fake calls, isn't it? And I reckon it's... Is it elands? They click their knees or something like yes, that. Yes, they do. And they, that is a thing which is attractive to women if they click their knees. Yeah. Um, but only the big ones can make the noise, yes. and it's impossible for the small ones to fake it. Yes, ah. so that's an honest signal. Whereas the peacocks can just stand in their windows going, Oh, wow! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah! What's that? Oh, yeah, I know I'm good. Uh, What? Great! Wow! Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. James? At James Harkin. And Chazinski? You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing, our Facebook page, which is No Such Thing as a Fish. We have a website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have, there's a lot, put No Such Thing as a Fish in the internet, you'll get something. Um, <laughs> and uh, we will be back again next week with another episode. Guys, you have been amazing. Thank you so much. We'll see you then. <laughs> Goodbye! <laughs>